Alright, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be actually covering verses 5 through 14 tonight. We will... Unless you... Unless I know... It took two weeks to get through four verses, but I, if you, unless you misbehave, we actually may finish chapter 1. And I'll explain in a second after I read this passage to you why we're going to move along a little bit quicker tonight. There's a purpose for it. Alright, so starting in verse 5, the Hebrew writer says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings His firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. And speaking of the angels, He says, He makes His angels winds of fire, His servants flames of fire. But about the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, the Hebrew writer, as we were left off last week, has been talking about the fact that Jesus is superior to the angels. And we looked at the reasons for why he was having to deal with that issue last time. But now, what I want you to also see is if, if, you, if your Bibles are set up in this way, most Bibles, when they quote from an Old Testament passage, will kind of either put it italicized or shrunk a little bit, and the, the margins will be different, if you will. But they, they denote some of them uh, bold, and some of your Bibles will be bold. A lot of your Bibles will, yours is in caps, uh, will show that this is actually a quotation from the Old Testament. Now, in doing so, if you look at what I just read to you, most of every single verse of what we just read is all quotations from the Old Testament. And that's one of the things that actually makes the study of the book of Hebrews really fun is because the Hebrew writer uses a lot of Old Testament passages to prove what he's trying to say to the New Testament Christians. Now, at the same time, as you will see later on in our study, there's a lot of value from this as well. You're going to see some neat things because in learning how the Hebrew writer used the Old Testament to interpret the New It'll help us know how to interpret the Old Testament as well. There are times that people fall into the mindset of thinking that the Old Testament is you know, the way God used to be, and now the New Testament is the way God is now, and that's not it at all. He's the same as yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been the same God with the same mindset. And the Hebrew writer helps us see that it's, he's had the same mind, mindset all along. Now, at the same time, you're going to see some encouraging things. The Hebrew writer, as we get further in his study, is going to say something like this. It's written somewhere. How many of us have struggled with the fact of, man, I know it's there, but I don't know quite where. And we feel guilty because we can't name chapter and verse. And then God uses someone like Jim Johnson and the gifts that he's given me to memorize scripture. And you go, oh, I could never be like that. Good. You're not supposed to be like that. That's how God made me for what he's gifted me to do. And I'm able to have the word of God in my heart. So as I go into these churches around the country and deal with whatever, I don't even know half the time what I'm going to be dealing with when I show up there. God is able to say, here's where you need to go. And I can take from what he's put in my heart. And that's part of what it is he wants me to be and to do. For you... 
Know the Word. Know what it says. And actually, if you ever did a study of this, you would find that almost every time that the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, if you were to go back and compare, it is almost never exactly word for word. It's obvious you could tell where they're quoting from, but I've very been hard-pressed to ever find where they were exactly word for word. How many of you grew up with the old Bible drill kind of a thing? Remember the Bible drill? And you used to have to memorize Scripture, and then you'd stand up there all nervous, and they'd say, well, you did good, but you left the word if off. You know, that kind of a thing. And it's created in some of our mindset that mentality of, if I don't have it perfectly memorized. No. God wants you to get His word in your heart. He wants you to know what it says, what He's trying to say. Don't worry about whether or not you know exactly where it is. It does help sometimes to know where it is so you can show somebody. I'm not saying don't Take the time to learn. But don't panic if you're not the best at it because the Hebrew writer said it. Oh, and by the way, Paul even said that one time when he was quoting from the Old Testament. So as we go through this study in in the weeks and months to come, you're going to be encouraged by how we can learn about the Old Testament from the Hebrew writer. Now for tonight though, he quotes from seven, seven different passages In what we just read, in those verses that I just read, he quotes from seven different passages. And guess what? Five of them are from the book of Psalms. Now, you're going to see through the study of Hebrews what a shock it is to many people that when we think about Old Testament prophecies, how many of you would think of the book of Psalms? We would think of like Zechariah or we would think of, uh, what's that? Isaiah or Jeremiah. Uh, We would think the prophets. There is a lot of prophecy in the book of Psalms, and you're going to see tonight that, because I'm going to pull out two of the passages. He quotes from seven. I am not going to take the time tonight to go and look at each of the seven passages where he pulled from. If you really want to go into that, I want you to take the time to do some. If you've got a study Bible, it'll show you in your uh, margins or down at the bottom where he's quoting from. If you want to do that, it'd be a fun study for you to do that. But I also know for the purpose of this study, it would really bog us down. And I don't, as, as you know, this is an in-depth study, but there's also a point where you can get too in-depth where you actually start to lose the purpose of what you're trying to do. And so as I prayed over this passage, there's two main ones that I think God wants us to look at. And the first one is in Psalm chapter 2. So put a bookmark here in Hebrews uh, and go to Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to read you the whole chapter, verses 1 through 12. In Psalm chapter 2, it it, it reads like this. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He rebukes them in His anger. And terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now the Hebrew writer quotes from this passage. What verse does he quote from? Verse 7. 
Very good. Where he says, back in Hebrews chapter 1, For which of the, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, and today I have become your father. Now he then goes on in verse, uh, the rest of verse uh, 5 to say in Hebrews 1, Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. That's actually a passage he's quoting from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to go there later in the study. So for the sake of time now, just keep that in your mind. That there's a place that he's quoting from where it says, you know, uh, that you're going to be my son. And he'll be my son. So, what I want you to understand though is, even though the angels are described in the Bible as sons of God. You'll see that a lot. The angels are described as sons of God. Nowhere in the Bible are they ever called the son of God. As it is here in Psalm, when he says, today you've been called my son. Go to Luke chapter 1 though, and you'll actually see that this term, the son of God, has been in our Bibles all along. I'm going to show you two places that are actually very, very familiar. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. It says, in the sixth month... God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called what? The Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Here in the prophecy to Mary that she was going to give birth to this child and she was to name him Jesus, she was told he will be called the Son of the Most High. It's pretty clear. He will be called the Son of God. Now, again, the Hebrew writer points back to Psalm chapter 2 where he said, Today you're called my son. Go to Mark chapter 1. You're in Luke. Just back up one book to Mark Mark chapter 1. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. By the way, I could have taken all night showing you the passages that show how Jesus is the Son of God. But I'm just going to pull out two main ones for right now. Mark chapter 1. Verses 9 through 11 says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You see it again. God clearly says, This is my Son. Now, the Hebrew writer, again, going back to Hebrews 1, uh, actually takes the time to say, okay, to which angel has God ever said, you are my son? None. There's a special distinction for, for Jesus. Now, we'll get to this later on in our study, but for us as well, we become children of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And in the same way in which God the Father feels toward Jesus the Son, it's very hard for us to grasp, but that's how God the Father feels toward you right now if you're in Christ. He feels the exact same way towards you. And I'll get right to you. He feels the exact same way towards you that He feels toward Jesus Himself. Because now you are in Christ. But a lot of times we know this on paper. But how many of us are really able to fully receive the love of God 
that is the same as he feels toward Jesus. If I were to ask you, does, does God the Father love Jesus? You'd say, amen. Yeah, he does. He loves Jesus. Um, How does he feel about you? Well, he, he loves me too, I think. Kind of. If you were to ask most people today, most Christians, how do you know God loves you? They would have to answer this. Well, um, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And you know what? That's true. But there's so much more. I think, honestly, one of the reasons why Christians are the way they are is they don't fully understand the love of the Father for them. That's why Paul said, man, I pray your eyes and your heart will be opened. That you know the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God. I want you to understand how much He's for you, how much He loves you. Jesus Himself in the garden says, I have made you known to them, Father, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for Me will be in them. Isn't that neat? Jesus, is one of His main activities is to continually open your eyes and my eyes to the fact that the Father feels the same way about you as He does about Jesus. Does it have anything to do with your behavior? No, it has everything to do with the fact that you're in Christ. Ida, you had your hand up. Okay, two things, first of all. Uh huh. That, um, of course, he, you know, I always feel like I'm his favorite. <laughs> hey, he doesn't have favorites, but he does have intimates. He has wrong. Exactly. He doesn't have favorites, but he does have intimates. Those who are willing to take the time, if you will, to let Him love on them. He loves everyone. But let's be honest, Enoch walked with God and God just took him home. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that he was known as, was commended as one who pleased God. So don't think God has favorites. He does not. But He does have intimates and you can be one as well. You should feel like you're His favorite. Yes, definitely. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Ida has just claimed being his favorite. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Begotten, yes, yes, firstborn of God. Oh, definitely. Yeah, John chapter 1. If Jesus is the firstborn, we are the rest of the born. John chapter 1 says, To those who received Him, He gave the right to become children of God. Not children born of natural descent or a husband's will or human decision, but born of God. We are children of God, born of God, when He puts His Spirit within us. Folks, I want you to grasp this truth. If you have been born again and He's given you His Spirit, according to the Scriptures, you are now in Christ. You're in Him. Jesus said on that day, you're going to realize that I'm in you and you're in me and I'm in the Father and you're in Christ. That's how the Father sees you. Now, is He working on your behavior? Yes. Is He working on mine? Of course. But it will not change how He feels about us for a second. The struggle is, we have to daily renew our minds to remember that. Because you, you know, you'll have a night where you will feel His love. You'll feel His forgiveness. You'll feel His presence and it'll be wonderful. Some of you probably have had experiences like that where you had to pull the car over because you were just worshiping so much you couldn't drive. I've had those times. But then you wake up in the morning and you don't feel as good. Or something's happened and you now question, well, if he really does love me, why did mom die? If he really does love me, how come my husband lost his job? And, and Satan will come in and say, well, is that really true? And we start to measure what's going on around us to try to determine the love of God. The love of God is because of Jesus the Son. And the Scripture says that God feels about you the exact same way He feels about Jesus. Get that in your head and in your heart.
Alright? But you know what? Not only does the Hebrew writer use Psalm 2 as proof of the reality of Jesus' fulfillment of Psalm 2, and today you've become my son. You know, the apostles understood that as well. Go to Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 26. Peter and John are speaking at this time and in Acts 4 verses 23 it says on their release Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them when they heard this they raised their voices together in prayer to God sovereign Lord they said you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them you you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant our father David and then he quotes from Psalm chapter 2 Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Peter and John understood full of the Holy Spirit that David was talking about Jesus when he wrote Psalm 2. Not only that, we see in Acts chapter 13, Paul understood that that passage, Psalm 2, was talking about Jesus. In Acts chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, Paul says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. So the Hebrew writer wasn't the first one to actually quote from Psalm 2, saying this is talking about Jesus. Peter and John did. Paul did. There are many places that that passage is mentioned. And so I want you to understand The Hebrew writer, remember we saw in in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, I think it was, he's a second generation Christians. He said, this salvation we heard about, Jesus preached about, and then we heard about it from those whom he preached to about it, and how he's a second generation. But they understood that the Psalms were full of prophecy about Jesus, and Psalm 2 was pointing to him. Alright, so we're just going to kind of lay that one to rest. But because of the fact that, well, who wrote Psalm 2? You just heard it. David. David wrote Psalm 2. Remember Paul just said, you know, through the mouth of David. I'm sorry, Peter and John said that about the mouth of David. Here's part of the problem they ran into though. David wrote a lot of prophecy. David wrote most of the Psalms. And in the Psalms are these prophecies, but it always talks about this descendant of David that was going to come. And so they, being like us, were trying to do the math and figure out which one it was. Is it Solomon? Is it Absalom? Is it, who is this descendant of David that the prophecies talk about? Isaiah talked about how a, a shoot out of Jesse's stump, if you will, is going to come. And there's this descendant of David. And so there was confusion as to whether or not the prophecies were speaking of David himself. Because the Bible talks about David's throne and David's kingdom in the last days. Remember in our study of Revelation, it really looks like the Bible clearly teaches that not only will Jesus literally be ruling and reigning in Jerusalem, so will David himself. So because of the fact that there were prophecies that were talking about the second coming of Christ and the millennial kingdom, there was all this confusion. Is okay? Are these prophecies talking about David himself? Or are they talking about someone else? Or maybe one of his sons? Do you remember when... Uh, Philip was led by the Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch was sitting in the chariot reading the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 53. What was the guy's question? Who is he writing about? Is he writing about himself or somebody else? Who is this talking about? And of course Philip was able to that point begin from there to show him how the prophecy was talking about Jesus. Well, 
Here's why we have this confusion. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 5 through 17. This is another one of those places that the Hebrew writer quotes from, like I told you about. But listen to what goes on here. David has just decided he wants to build God a temple. He felt bad that he was living in a house of cedar and the, the, the ark of God was living in a tent. So he decided he was going to build God a temple. And so Nathan says, hey, whatever's in your heart, do it. God's with you. Well, that night God comes back to Nathan and says, go back and tell David this. Go and tell, verse 5 of 2 Samuel 7, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Has that happened yet? Uh, Has not, has it? Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. Has that happened yet? So this must be some kind of prophecy that's down the road even for us as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. Now look closely at verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish His kingdom... He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Now, as you read this, we know that Solomon was the one that God chose to build the temple. So it was partially fulfilled in Solomon, his descendant, building the house. But it's obvious there's something else going on here because we don't see anywhere in the history of Solomon that he was beaten with rods and and flogged. Right? Right? And actually, if you know any of the history between David and Solomon, actually Solomon became king before David died. But verse 12 said, after you die and you go and are buried with your fathers, after that time period, I'm going to raise up a descendant of yours and I will establish his throne forever and he will be my son and I'll be his father. Now, we are on the blessed side of the cross where a lot of this stuff makes a lot more sense, does it not? But that's why there was this confusion over all these years. But now, all of a sudden, this makes so much more sense. Go back to Acts 13 and listen to the rest of what Paul was preaching there. I just gave you a couple of verses. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. Um, So how much of it are you saying applies to Jesus? Because verse 14 says, and it does wrong. 
Right. All right. I'm, I'm wondering if someone's going to grasp that. And, and I didn't know if you're going to, we're going to take the time to deal with it, but I guess we're going to now. All right. Look closely what's going on here. This is why there's a dual fulfillment here. And you have to, be, you have to stick with me to be able to, to fully grasp what I'm about to share with you here. We know full well that God did chastise or discipline Saul, Solomon when he sinned. We know the Bible says without question that Jesus never sinned. Isaiah 53 said that there was no deceit in his mouth and, 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 and he did nothing wrong when he went as a suffering servant. Hebrews, we'll get to it in chapter 4, talks about how he was tempted in every way as which we are, yet without sin. Corinthians talks about how God took him who knew no sin and made him become sin for us. So, in order to really understand this, you're going to have to hear a duel at the same time thing going on here. He's talking a little bit about Solomon. When he sins, I will deal with him. But yet, at the same time, these floggings and these rods, it's kind of like when David wrote Psalm 22. And he said, my bones are all out of joint. You, a band of evil men have encircled me. They've cast lots for my clothing. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Well, definitely there were evil men that would encircle David. And there were those who were out to get him, but he never had his hands and feet pierced, and he never had his bones out of joint that we have recorded. It's a dual fulfillment. But even if you want to make that fully Jesus, there was a point where even though he was sinless, all of our sin was put on him. Did he ever sin? No. The Bible is very clear. Yet, there was a point where all of the sin of mankind was put on Jesus. And at that moment, he experienced the separation from the Father that I can't fully explain how that works. How God can separate himself from God, I don't know. But Jesus, who forever called him my Father, my Father, my Father, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So as a quick answer to your question, Becky, I think it's a duel. It talks a little bit about Solomon, because we know Solomon wasn't really fully well behaved during the end of his life. And God had to deal with that. Yet... There's obviously something else here that's not Solomon, and it's Jesus. All right? He didn't derail us too bad. That's good. Go over to Acts chapter 13. It's a good question. I wrestled with it myself. I really did. Acts chapter 13. Look at verses 22 through 37. This is Paul's sermon. He's been going through, uh, I'm even jumping in the middle of this now. If you want to go look at the whole sermon, you can later. Uh, He's dealing with how Jesus is who God has said he was. Uh, In verse 22, after removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, does that mean literally he'll never do anything wrong? Hopefully you understand from David's history, he didn't do everything in that sense of God wanted him to do, yet he did what God wanted him to do, and God accomplished his purpose through David in his lifetime. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles... 
and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning Him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. When they had carried out all that was what was written about Him, they took Him down from that tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised Him from the dead, and for many days He was seen by those who had traveled with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now His witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God has promised our fathers. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised Him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So that it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. So what Paul is saying here is that passage that you know in the Old Testament, and it's actually Psalm 16 that talks about you won't let my Holy One see decay, couldn't have been talking about David. Guys, David died. And his body's rotted. So it can't be David. It's got to be somebody else. And oh, by the way, Jesus is of the lineage of David. And that's why in the book of Matthew, in the book of Luke, we see the genealogies at the beginning where you can trace the lineage of Jesus through Joseph and through Mary back to David. All these prophecies that for a while were hidden or obscure now become clear, and the Hebrew writer is saying to the, 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 the Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism, why would you go back? The fulfillment of the prophecies is here. He's come. He's died for us. He's risen from the dead. He saved you. Why would you even think about walking away? What else is there? And you're going to see that down the road in this book. But for now, he says, why go back to just the worship of angels? I think the best illustration of all of this is in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Look how Paul starts his book here. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Him and for His name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear what he says? Jesus is in David's lineage in His human side, but through the Holy Spirit... He's proven to be God Himself. How did He know? How do we know that He's God? According to this passage? By His resurrection. By His rising from the dead. By His own power. Alright? So, clearly Jesus is the one who fulfills all the prophecies in all of the Bible. They partially fit sometimes some people like Solomon or David and partially, but fully they only fit Jesus.
There are actually over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament as to the coming Messiah. Jesus fulfills every single one of them. And by the way, for the math people, the, the odds of that are astronomical. Just astronomical. Of one person fulfilling all 300 of those prophecies. So, now, go real quick to Psalm 110. Any questions before we move on? Alright, go to Psalm 110, because this is where the second passage that I want to deal with tonight comes from. Again, remember the Hebrew writer quotes from seven different places. We're only really looking at two, two and a half since we looked at 2 Samuel. Psalm 110. Look at verse 1. We'll come back to this psalm later in our study of Hebrews, but we won't deal with it tonight. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Where in Hebrews chapter 1 do you see that one? Where in Hebrews 1 do you see that, that one quoted? 13. Very good, Nicole. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The angels are always in the presence of God. They stand before the Lord. They worship the Lord. They bow before the Lord. But none of them have been told to be able to sit down at His right hand. There's only one who's been able to do that, and that's Jesus. When He finished His work of salvation, He sat down at the right hand of the Father. But you know... um, the Hebrew writer quotes from Psalm 110, and he uses it as his clinching argument that Jesus is greater than the angels. But it was this passage was also used by Jesus. Now, I want you to take a look at this, because this is very interesting now. Hopefully you understand this passage is talking about Jesus, Psalm 110, verse 1. But go to Luke 20, and you'll see how Jesus actually refers to this passage. And he does it in a kind of coy, a, a kind of a coy way. But it's neat if you really can grasp what he's doing. Luke 20, verses 41 through 44. So in verse 41 of Luke 20, Jesus says, Then he said to them, How is it that they say that the Christ, that means the Messiah, the anointed one, that, remember the Jews were looking for the Messiah, they called him in, in Greek the Christ or the, the anointed one. How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, we know now Psalm 110 verse 1, David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Now, was it that Jesus didn't think that Christ was going to be the son of David? No, we know that he knew full well that he was the son of David in genealogy through his parents, or through his mother, you know, then why is Jesus throwing him this curveball? Hey guys, you keep talking about this anointed one being the son of David. How come David, though, says, the Lord says to my Lord? So if David is writing this, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Because there aren't many dads who call their son Lord. Those of you who are earthly fathers, can you imagine it? Nah. There are probably some sons who want that to happen, but we have a hard time imagining it. Why is Jesus wanting them to wrestle with this? He was getting them to wrestle with their questions. That's one of the reasons. A lot of times when they were trying to trap him, he would ask them a question that made them not want to answer their, his question either. And they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah. They knew the prophecies. What were they looking for, though? They were looking for a conqueror king. They were looking for a conqueror king, but they were looking for what? A man. 
They're just looking for a, a human descendant of David. They weren't looking for God. And so Jesus is now at least throwing a little seed out there. Okay, you're looking for Him to be a human. Why would David call Him Lord then? Why would David call Him Lord if He's just a human descendant of David? Now, I'm not telling you that anybody grasped it right then, but I can guarantee you somebody went home and sat there scratching their head for a while like, you know what, now that He says that, why would David call Him Lord? The Lord says to my Lord, David wrote. Why would David call Him Lord? Well, of course, we know again, because the inside of the Holy Spirit as well, the reason David called Him Lord is because He's Lord. He's God Himself. He's God Himself. Also, not only did Jesus use Psalm 110 to preach from, Peter did. Go, go back to Acts chapter 2, and, and, uh, or forward if you're in Luke, and Acts 2 to, to the message at Pentecost. Here's part, again, not all of it, a part of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, starting in verse 29 in Acts 2. Peter stands up and he says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. Paul talked about that. We already saw that earlier. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, he says, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Peter himself, full of, remember, when you ever see the word full of the Spirit, it means under the control of the Spirit. Under the control of the Spirit preached from that exact same passage in Psalm 110. I guess what I'm wanting you to see here is there's a lot of prophecy in the Psalms. A lot. And we haven't even scratched the surface of it. But I want to challenge you, as you read the Psalms, Ask God to show you some of the prophecies. A lot of times we just read them as songs or we read them as, as, as a, you know, a daily reading. There's a lot of prophecy in the Psalms and the early apostles preached from the Psalms quite a bit. Preached from, yes ma'am, go right ahead. Do you think that the, the prophets, uh, David, do you think that they actually understood the, the inspiration of God? Do you think that when they were writing it, did they understand it? Um, I can answer that question with Scripture. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10. 
It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have, been, who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. So what, what Peter's saying here is, they knew that it wasn't to be happening in their time. They didn't know when. They didn't know the full how. But they had enough insight from the Spirit of God who was writing through them that they were writing for a time and a group of people that were going to really experience an awesome blessing. Now they do know. <laughs> but at the time, they had some insight, but it was only enough to let them know that it was down the road, not in their day. Does that answer your question? Alright, now in the time that we have left, let's try and deal with verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. According to verse 14, angels are servants sent to serve those of us who will inherit salvation. Alright, now, in order for us to do this in the time that we have left, let me just refer to a passage, and in, in, I want you to write this down and look it up later for yourselves. It's Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to kind of semi-quote it to you and give you an idea of what's in there. That's the place where Jesus talks about the little children and how their angels are always, their faces are before the Father. And we kind of get the idea of guardian angels. And whether or not everybody has their own angel, I don't know. But I do know the Bible does clearly teach that God uses angels to minister to us. How do I know that? Well, verse 14 says so. That they're ministering servants, look closely at this, sent, that's important, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Who sends them? God, the Father. Why? Because they are servants created by Him to serve Him, and they, are, they do His bidding. As you remember from our Revelation study, there's different levels of angels. Some have higher responsibilities. Some are over kingdoms. Some are protecting the nation of Israel. Others are holding back the four winds of the earth until a certain point. Others take care of the altar in, front, in His presence. Uh, there are different types of angels and different responsibilities, but the Bible clearly says that God uses angels to minister to us, those of us who will inherit salvation, those of us who are His children, those of us who are in Christ. So I'm telling you that in Christ thing is awesome. And we're going to get to that as we wrap up tonight. We're going to deal with that who will inherit salvation. So stick with that. Alright? Now, for right now though, and I'll get right to you Fred, uh, in Psalm 91, verses 9-16, through 16, again, I want you to take the time to go look at it yourself. Write this down in notes, Psalm 91, verses 9-16. Uh, through 16. It's actually a very famous passage, but I don't hear it preached on very much, except when we look at Matthew 4, where Jesus is in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil... Remember how Satan comes and he says, stand up on the pinnacle of the temple and throw yourself down because it says in the Bible that he will cause his angels to take care of you and you won't dash your foot against the stone, right? Well, Satan was quoting from Psalm 91 in this section, but even though he was misquoting it or twisting it, 
If you take the time to go look at that, you'll be very, very encouraged by the fact that the Bible says that God is using angels to protect you. Now, a lot of people still give Satan way more authority than he has. He's the prince of the power of this air. He, he, he is the ruler of this world for a time. He's been given dominion. The dominion that we had when Adam and Eve were created and he gave them dominion over the earth, well, man gave that dominion to Satan. And God ultimately has rule over the whole universe, but He's allowed Satan to have some authority in this world for a time. If you don't believe me, turn on the news, look at your neighbors. Alright? Or look in your own house. Alright? So, what I want you to understand though is this. Satan can do nothing to you unless your father gives him permission. Remember in the situation with Job, where God, Satan said, the only reason Job's like that is because you wouldn't let me touch him. The second that God said, I'll tell you what, you can't touch him, but you can do whatever you want with his life, he killed everyone except his wife. <laughs> oh, the three friends weren't there, though, at the time. We're talking about the, the, but so what I want you to understand, though, is if Satan had the freedom to, you wouldn't be here. He hates you. Why? Because he hates God. And you are his child. He would have you chewed up and spit out and devoured a long time ago. Now, sometimes God allows him to have some reign in your life, but God does it for his purposes, and it's never outside of his control, and he has set limits. But the Bible clearly says, and you can look at it yourself in Psalm 91, that the angels that are sent by the Father to take care of us, they protect us from him. We see the battles. Remember how we saw in Daniel the battle between the angels in the spiritual realm and Michael came and hadn't finally won the battle so this messenger could get to Daniel. There is a battle going on in the spiritual realm and they're protecting you. God is and He's using His servants to do it. So take a deep breath. Satan can't get you unless God lets him. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Deliver us from evil. What's the first part? The first part before deliver us from evil says, lead us not into temptation. Why would Jesus teach you to pray to the Father not to lead you into temptation? Wouldn't that that seem kind of silly? Wait a minute. You're praying our Father who art in heaven. We understand asking Him to give you your daily bread. But Jesus taught you to pray to your Father, don't lead me into temptation. Why? Because the Father determines whether or not Satan's even allowed to tempt you. There is no temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which has seized you, but such is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted with more than you're able to bear. And with the temptation, He'll provide a way for you to escape. Why does it seem like God's pretty involved in my temptation? Because He is. James 1, 13 says He doesn't tempt anyone. He's not tempted by evil. He's not doing the tempting. But He's got someone that will do the job if He lets them. And so when we pray, we can pray, Father, you have control over whether or not Satan even tempts me. And I'm going to pray that you don't say yes, please. I'm going to pray that you protect me and don't let him do anything in my family. But if you choose to say yes, I'll trust you. And you have a reason. And your reason is best. And I may not even ever understand it like Job never did. But I'm going to ask you to deliver me from him. And in Psalm 91, you'll see all that. I will deliver you from trouble. Alright? The angels are servants of God sent to minister to us. 
Now, we're not going to go into a whole lot bigger study of angels because we've just spent a whole chapter dealing, three weeks dealing with how Jesus is greater than angels. Why are we going to spend any more time on that? They do the bidding of your Father and they love you and care for you. Why? Because the one who is their master loves you and cares for you and they do his bidding. Alright? Of course, there are demons. They don't feel the same way. But you're protected. Now, we just read when we were answering Jeannie's question that the angels even long to look into this relationship that we have. Have you ever thought about that? As much as the prophets didn't fully understand what the Spirit of Christ was saying through them, they knew it was something awesome and they knew it was going to be coming down the road. The angels even long to look into this relationship. How can God feel so the way He does about them? It's simply because we're in Christ. What's that? We were created in His image. We were. Even the angels weren't created in His image. And He has put us in Christ. I'm going to say it again. You can hear it a lot. The sooner that sinks in, the sooner you'll be a lot more fun to be around. When we really understand how much God loves us, we're going to be easy on the people around us. We're going to be a lot more forgiving, a lot more patient, a lot more... Well, doesn't that sound like the fruit of the Spirit? When it really sinks in how much God loves you, that's when you start living like a Christian. Too many of us have been trying to live like a Christian so that God would love you. you got the, heart, the cart before the horse, folks. We've had the preachers for too long say, if you love Jesus, you obey Him. That's how you prove to Him you love Him. No, the Bible says, if you love Me, put your emphasis there, you will obey My commands. We've had too long the preachers telling us that the way we get in God's good favor is by being a good person. No, we let Him love us and we love Him in return and we become what He wants us to be as we yield to His love. So what does the Hebrew writer mean though when he says will inherit salvation? Why is this spoken of as future? I mean, don't we already have salvation? Why does he say will? Because there's more to it. There's definitely more to it. Let me give you an example. How many of you, show of hands, can look me in the eye today and know that you have salvation? Awesome. That's a great thing. Show it to me. Show me your glorified body. Come on, show me your glorified body. I want to see your glorified body. Oh, so you're telling me there's still some more of your salvation that haven't received yet. That's exactly it. It's not only will inherit salvation in that way, it's also, as I think you were pointing out as well, the Father in His foreknowledge knows who will be His. Do you realize that I think the Bible kind of points to the fact that He protected you before you even got saved? There are some people I know who have lived long enough before they came to Christ who can look back and say, I shouldn't be alive. And then later in life they came to faith. You're one of them, Neil. Ministering servants sent to protect those who will inherit salvation. Now, but I want to show you a couple of cool verses real quick. I want, for your sake of time, some people can read loud because people are going to be listening on the web are going to want to hear these. Someone give Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. I need to show a hand who's going to take it. Nicole, you got that one? Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Cindy, you got that one? And I saw a hand back there. Is that you, Allison? You got Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. Romans 13, verse 11 and 12. Now, now listen closely to these passages that talk about how our salvation is a done deal, yet we have not fully received it yet. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Read that for us, Nicole. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. That's right. You got the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until He comes and gets you. You're on layaway. That's right. 1 Peter 1.13 This is the New Living Translation. That's fine. Do you hear that? Look forward to the salvation that's going to come to you when Jesus is revealed to the world. You've already been given salvation. You've already been saved. The Bible is very clear that you have been saved through your faith. For it is by grace that we have been, past tense, saved. You've already received salvation, but it's a point and a process. You are sanctified because of Jesus Christ. It's a point and a process. Let Him finish the work. There's a reason why He hasn't taken you immediately to heaven. I think, honestly, and the Bible points in this direction, that part of the reason why God waits to bring us to the fullness of our salvation, I mean, if it was just save me and then I go to heaven, we'd all die as soon as we trust Christ. It would be kind of interesting, though. I don't think people would be walking down the aisle as rapidly if that actually happened. Can you imagine if, if every time someone walked the aisle, they were like, praise God! You know, you know, we probably wouldn't have as many altar calls. But what I, what I, what I want you to understand this is God has a couple of... He has many reasons. I'm going to pull out two to you. One is He wants to use you as a witness to share the message of this wonderful salvation we've give, been given because we didn't do anything except believe and then when we that's a good, that's one of another is this I think the bible teaches that he is now shaping you in this life for the life to come We'll have responsibilities and jobs and, and, and it's not going to be harps and clouds, folks. And, and a part of how we live here and what He does and what we allow Him to do in and through us and how much we allow Him to mature us will affect how we live for eternity. We can't deny the Scripture teaches that. Allison, read this one. I love this one. Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber Your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. The day is almost here. The night is nearly over. Praise God. Praise God. I don't think there's any better way to end the study than on that. Let me pray for you. Father, again, I love Your Word. And I know that these folks here that do, and those that are listening right now through the website do. And Lord, we thank You for the fact that we... We, we have a hard time just cramming so much into just even one hour because as we really take the time to let Your Word speak, we see so much. Lord, some of us, it's been good for us tonight to, to hear even a little bit more. We've understood because we kind of believe what we've been told, but now we see it. You were the one that these prophecies talked about. It couldn't have been anybody else, Jesus, but You. It wasn't David. It wasn't Solomon. It, it was You. You're the one whose kingdom is going to be forever and ever. 
And you are right now sitting at the right hand of the Father and waiting until all of your enemies have been made a footstool for your feet. There is a day of judgment coming. You're going you're to gather your bride and then you're going to finish the last seven year period for the nation of Israel and for the world. And then you'll come back for your people and you'll be dealing with the nation of Israel and then you'll judge the nations and you're going to set up your kingdom and there's so much more still to come. But your word also is showing us that for those of us who have become your bride through your grace, the night is nearly over. It's hard for us sometimes. And Paul himself wrestled in Philippians 1 with whether or not he was going to go home and be absent from the body and present with you or whether or not he was going to stay in the body and have more fruitful labor. And he was torn between the two. And we know that feeling. We groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly bodies. But you have a reason. And you tell us by faith to hang on. And you're storing up reward for us as we allow you to work in and through us. You're using us to shine your light, even on the days we don't even realize that you're doing your stuff. So Father, may we just continue to trust you. May we not fall prey to the false teaching that says it's up to us. May we just hold on daily and keep ourselves in your love by holding on to your truth. That we're in Christ and you'll finish what you started. And you don't need our help. You just need our faith and are allowing you to do it. Tonight, we faith you again. Not for salvation, we've received that already. Thank you for that. But we faith you again for all that you want to do in and through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.